Welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News, and Views, the place for pets. And they're people who love them. Aw, he's so soft. Come here, come here, boy. Here is your host, practicing veterinarian, veterinary news network reporter, and host of the popular YouTube show, The Web DVM, Dr. Roger Welton. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Veterinary Advice, Animal News and Views. I am veterinarian Roger Welton coming to you from the Space Coast of the great state of Florida. Thank you very much for joining me this evening. Our topic tonight is Top 10 Pet Myths. And uh, for those of you who have tuned in before, you will know that in the past when I do my Top 10 shows, I have broken it down to Top 10 Canine Myths, Top 10 Feline Myths, but in hindsight, in retrospect, there are many of these myths that uh, both species actually share in common. So to prevent uh, redundancy and in the interest of saving airtime for other topics, I decided to combine them into one episode. So I have a revised top 10 list. And, um, you know, every year there's always a, a, a different set of misinformation statements that I, I hear percolate percolating out there in the uh, either the cyber world or among breeders, groomers, or whatever your misinformation source is du jour, there always seems to be a new set of things. Of course, there are the diehards. There are the the misinformation uh, statements or sentiments that just seem to never go away, and they're, they're always included in every top 10 list. But I did revise it, and uh, I want to share those with you this evening, because misinformation is never a good thing. We want to get everything straightened out and clarified for you so you can best care for your pet. Uh, we're a little slow on the email listener questions uh, this evening. We only have one, actually. And before we get into our topic, let's go ahead and address that one question set in by a lady named Kalina. And Kalina, she just identified herself as Kalina. Uh, not sure where she's from, but here's her question. Hi, I recently found your show and I'm loving all the information presented. I have a question about homemade dog food. Now, I've listened to your views on raw food and think I understand all of the risks that are possible. I personally don't feel that I have enough knowledge for the precise preparation of the meat to ensure that bacteria or contaminants will not pollute the meat and don't trust manufacturers to take enough care to prepare prepackaged raw food for my dog. On the other end of the spectrum, I read about dog food with dyes and corn fillers and being processed, and again, manufacturers taking enough care to prepare it without any harmful substances in it. So, I am curious if cooking my own dog food would be a healthy alternative. For example, boiling whole grain rice and turkey, then adding cooked or raw veggies, and maybe some broth for flavor. I would really appreciate your view on the topic. Okay, this is a really good question, because, you know, I guess there's really no 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 better ideal way, I suppose, um, to ensure that you know, your dog is getting the most wholesome ingredients than actually preparing it yourself. And the the reality is that, um, you know, we have to admit the truth here. The truth is that dog foods are processed. I mean, they don't get into that perfect little kibble shape um, by themselves. You know, they're they're processed. There's uh, they go through various processes to to get to that place. Even canned diets are, are processed, and there are dyes added. Um, I mean, realistically, when we look at um, uh, canned foods, for example, they they really wouldn't exist in the colors that we're seeing if they've just gone through a meat processing plant. Uh, realistically, they are they, that stuff would be gray in color. It would be very, very 
unattractive. <laughs> and so it's like the meats that we buy, though, you know, that the red meat that we buy, you know, red meat isn't really red. That's also a dye that's added to make it, you know, nice and attractive. And and uh, so so the same things are done to, to dog foods. Um, you know, I don't know if it's too far removed from what they do to our people people foods, but, but certainly uh, preparing your dog's food is, is I can't, really argue with that logic. I can't see that being a bad idea. I think the one caveat before I get into, you know, the ideal way we can do these diets, the one caveat is, um, and I've run to, run into this problem several times with, with home-cooked diets, where let's say down the road a dog is diagnosed with pancreatic disease or kidney disease or liver disease, and ideally we want one of these dogs on one of the prescription disease uh, diets. So a perfect example, kidney failure. Dog goes into kidney failure. You want them to be on one of the prescription renal diets, which are phosphorus, sodium um, restricted, and also are comprised of high biological value protein, meaning protein that is protein that's associated with very little metabolic waste. Because in the end, that's really more than anything what's stressing the kidneys. And not to get into the kidneys too much, because I'm just using it as an example. But now you have a dog that's been, you know, fed. Uh, table food, not table food, but, you know, a home-cooked diet all its life. Basically, you go to feed it a diet like Hills KD or Royal Canin uh, Renal or Yukonuba Multistage Renal, whatever your prescription renal diet may be, kidney diet may be. Uh, it's going to look at that food and be like, what are you kidding me? What what are you feeding me here? This this is dog food and I have no interest in that. And and that's going to be even more so to the, to the patient that presents, you know, not feeling optimal because, you know, there's kidney disease present, so the appetite may not be uh, what it once was. So that's the one caveat, and 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 I guess one of the solutions to that is for the owner to prepare uh, a home-cooked kidney failure diet, um, but realistically, these home-cooked diets are not as perfectly well represented in terms of, uh, you know, biological value of protein, um, ideal acid base, ideal uh, sodium restriction, ideal phosphorus restriction. It's very hard to recreate that in the kitchen, in the home kitchen, but um, that is the one caveat I can see. But if you know you're okay with that, and obviously you're willing to do the work of uh, you know cooking for your dog on a daily basis for the life of the dog, I, I suspect if you're willing to do that, you're you'd be willing down the road to go to all lengths to get your dog to eat an ideal home cooked, you know, disease du jour diet, whether it's liver, pancreatic, or kidney disease. So. Um, outside of that, if you do decide you want to cook for your dog, let me give you some tips here. Um, again, I'm, I'm of the interest of, of helping you to do this to the best of your ability. And, and so you mentioned turkey as a protein source, and I think it's a very good idea. I think, uh, you know, all the poultries are very good. Well, we want to be careful with this, though. You don't want to use um, turkey breast because dogs have a crude fat requirement of around... 20%. We want 20% fat being in their diet. So I think turkey breast rep represents a, a, certainly a good amount of protein, but not enough fat. And we don't want to have to find ourselves adding fat to a diet. Um, it would be ideal if it, that fat is located within the, uh, within the protein source itself. So my, my suggestion would be like turkey legs, um, even, uh, you know, some, some of the innards, like the, if you cook the whole turkey, uh, the heart is, is, has a lot, both a lot of protein and, and a lot of, uh, fat as well. The liver is a really good nutrient source. Of course, you know, I look at that stuff and I'm like, no way in heck I'm going to eat that stuff, you know, that part of the turkey. But for the dog, that's delicious and it's loaded with nutrients and 
protein and, and the fats that the dog needs. So, you know, stick with things like, you know, the giblet and the, the legs and, and, and more the, uh, the organ-type substances. The legs are going to be higher in fat. Obviously, the darker meat is the better choice for poultry. The same goes for chicken. Save the breast for, your, for yourself, you know. I know uh, that's the part that I like to eat, so um, that's a good way to go about it. Um, on the beef side of things, uh, that, you know, that's another good protein source. You actually don't want to go with the leanest beef. You probably want to go with like uh, maybe uh, like a, a chuck type of type of beef, or a um, you know if you're going to prepare a steak, you want to go with like you know a fairly fatty steak because again we want to make sure we're representing that 20% crude fat requirement. All right, so then. Let's let's factor in. Let's break down the ideal nutrients. You know, we talked about fat being 20%. Protein should represent about 20 to 25%, which means if you're using a fattyish kind of meat source, um, that should represent about um, you know 45% to 50% of what's in the dog bowl when ultimately you're feeding the dog. Uh, you talked about boiling whole grain rice. Uh, I think that's you know a really nice protein source. And uh, no, I'm sorry, protein, carbohydrate source and fiber source, and uh, adding some some veggies. Uh, you talk about raw veggies. Um, I, you know, I some dogs will like raw veggies. I, others aren't going to be so crazy about them. Uh, for some reason, if you if you uh, steam the veggies, that can make them more attractive. And dogs tend to like more than any other veggies, uh, carrots and green beans. So if you steam some carrots and green beans, that'd be a good thing to add. And when you put together your mixture of rice and green beans and carrots and you mix that all up, it should represent about, you know, 50% of of the dog's diet. And uh, you should have the rice and the veggies there in near equal proportions. Um, and that's, you know, a good way to go about it. So, you know, again, let me just review real quick. You want a semi-fatty meat source, you know, with the poultry kind of stay away from the uh, the, the breast but you want to go more with organs and and the legs and the thighs. Um, if you're talking about beef, you either want to go with like a you know a, st- a fattier cut of steak, or uh, if you're going to go with the ground beef, go with like you know more of the chuck variety rather than something really lean because we've got to make sure we get in that crude fat component. And uh, when you take that meat, ultimately it should be about 45 to 50 percent of what's in the bowl, with the other uh, 50 percent of what's in the bowl being represented by vegetables and rice. And so that's that's a good way to go about it. I'm sure you're going to have a very uh, happy dog. Um, certainly eats better than my dogs do. I actually just opt for going with my dogs with a solid gold diet. You know, solid gold has uh, is one company of many that uh, makes preservative-free in vacuum pack vacuum packed sealed uh, you know bags. So preservative-free, uh, grain-free variety. Uh, my particular solid gold that I get is a lamb and rice variety, and, and I've been very happy with it. My dogs do very well on it. I just don't have the time nor the wherewithal to cook for my dogs. And and uh, But, hey, look, if, if you want to do that, I'm all for it, and uh, certainly I wish you the best of luck, and I do thank you for your contribution this evening from Kaylina, ladies and gentlemen. Um, so let's move on to our topic, top 10 myths, pet myths. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I listed these in no particular order, so number one and number ten are are you know no more or less a myth out there. So you know we're not really just it's not like the the Dave Letterman top ten that you know we're saving the best for last or anything like that. Just kind of randomly numbered them. Uh, let me start with 
one of the more irritating ones for me, which is number 10, uh, and that is omega-3 fatty acid and joint health supplements made for people are fine to give to my dog and cat. <laughs> um, that couldn't be further from the truth, and let me explain why. First off, let's look at omega-3 fatty acids. The, the doses and concentrations are going to be very different for dogs and cats versus people. They're very do- different from, from dogs to cats. So certainly from people to dogs to cats, you know, you're, you're just talking about different requirements in terms of dose because we bioabsorb nutrients differently than dogs and cats do. So you have that one problem. How do you dose this thing accurately and properly? Yeah, you can look on the internet, but the internet isn't always right, as we find out so often, as the internet tends to be a big source for a lot of this misinformation that's out there. So, you know, relying on doses from the internet isn't a very accurate way to go about treating your pet. Secondly, um, when we look at glucosamine, glucosamine does not absorb well in the canine gut. And so it has to be processed in a certain way that it's going to be ideally uh, absorbable. And frankly, the, the human preparations just don't accomplish that well. So, you know, not, not, not a good choice to give them a substance that you are paying for, even though you're paying for it maybe a little bit less because you're, you're getting it, say, at, you know, a superstore or something like that. But you're paying for it nonetheless. And you're giving it to your dog, and he's pooping out the majority of what you're giving him. You're not really accomplishing much. Uh, and that's with regard to glucosamine. With regard to omega-3 fatty acids, um, there are some additives in human-grade omega-3 fatty acids that we don't want to necessarily see in dog and cat omega-3 fatty acid supplements. A lot of omega-3 fatty acid supplements in people are fortified with the fat-soluble vitamins uh, A, D, E, and K. And these fat-soluble vitamins can actually reach toxic levels if not given appropriately. And when we're taking these omega-3 supplements that might be fortified with one or more of these fat-soluble vitamins, what we could end up doing is actually intoxicating our dogs and cats. So dosing is not ideal. There might be additives in there that are not necessarily appropriate for canines and felines. And lastly, um, you have items that may not be ideally absorbable in the canine or feline gut that we want to be careful with. So not a good idea. You know, the, the, and, and really in general, the, the sources for these supplements, um, you want reputable sources. So even like the human-grade products, you've got to be careful. You don't want to just buy any Tom, Dick, and Harry supplement out there. The FDA does not regulate these things, so they can proclaim to have something in the on the ingredient label that's in the product, and in the end, that doesn't need to be there. Nobody's policing that, so you want to stick with reputable stuff. And in the case of pet health supplements, whether it's joint health, whether it's omega-3, you know, what have you, you want to you want a brand that has a reputation at stake, where if they're found to be frauds, they have a lot to lose. And so we're talking veterinary pharmaceutical grade for the most part. And, you know, that's going to be best available on your veter- in your veterinarian's office. So you want to be careful with those. Use veterinary grade. Don't mess around um, administering human-grade stuff to your, to your dogs and cats. Number nine, my pet will get fat if I spay, neuter him, her, because these procedures slow the metabolism. Um, this is very, very untrue. Now, it is true that statistically spayed and neutered pets tend to be a little bit on the more portly side on average 
when compared to unspayed or unneutered uh, dogs and cats. And the reason for that has nothing to do with metabolism, however. Uh, this has actually been heavily studied in, in veterinary medicine. And re- we, we do know that the basal metabolic rate does not change with one of these procedures. Here's what does change. The appetite. The appetite changes. There's something about the hormones that have an appetite-mitigating effect. So especially in the case of females, the appetite will often be just, you know, off the chart high um, and become downright ravenous and will eat as much as you give them. I, you know, and, and so if the owners give in to that and don't exercise portion control, that's why these animals will get portly and obese, not because their metabolism is slowed, but because the owners are not really mitigating what the pet eats on a daily basis and just giving in to that tendency to just be a ravenous creature. So metabolic needs do not change. Metabolic rates do not change with spays or neuters. They don't have to get fat after a spay or neuter if you don't want them to, if you don't let them. So just remember that. Number eight, my dog destroys things out of anger or spite when I leave the home. That is not true. Dogs do not have the emotion of spite. Um, They can be angry. We've seen angry dogs before. But they're not angry when you leave the home. They are stressed when you leave the home. And stress, anger, and spite are very different emotions. When they are stressed, they will tend, some of them will tend to um, destroy things. And the person will come home and very often I hear, I know he just did it just to spite me because I left the house. No. Spite is not something dogs do. Some, that's something people do. Your dog is going to destroy things because he has a condition known as separation anxiety. And if you want to learn more about that, I'm not going to get into that too much, please um, refer to the episode where I actually had a um, professional dog behaviorist talk about separation anxiety and what it means and why they do what they do. But trust me, spite and anger have nothing to do with it. And in fact, if you come home and you're yelling and screaming and you're upset with the dog, you're actually going to make things worse and make the dog more neurotic. So just remember, anger and spite have nothing to do with it. It's all about stress. Seven, grains are not the root of most disease in dogs and cats. This is kind of one of those Internet things, you know, where the people got together on the forums and decided for themselves that grains are the enemy that grains are the root of all disease in dogs and cats. It's actually not true. The root of most disease in dogs and cats is actually genetic more than anything, unscrupulous breeding more than anything. Um, grains, yeah, there are some bona fide cases of where grains are not the best idea for a particular patient, whether there's food allergy manifesting in the skin or the gut, or uh, just grains are simply not tolerated for whatever reason, inflammatory bowel disease, what have you. Yes, that's a good idea to eliminate grains. It's one of the first places we'll look. However, if you have your average dog or kitty eating a food that utilizes grain-based carbohydrate sources, if their stools are normal and their hair coat looks healthy and they are not overweight and life seems fine, folks, life is fine, okay? Um feeding them grains is not going to hurt them because they can assimilate them and tolerate them just fine. It's actually a fairly small percentage of, of animals out there that uh, aren't tolerating the grains. So, and, and typically we're going to know if they're not. If there's, it's not some mystery thing. Um, if there's inflammatory bowel disease secondary to a gluten allergy, for example, 
the patient will have diarrhea or will be chronically vomiting or both, you know, something like that. But, you know, perfectly healthy, run-of-the-mill pets, grains are not the enemy. Number six, my dog does not need heartworm preventive because he's primarily an indoor dog. Okay, this is not the case. This is not true. I see plenty of pampered indoor dogs get heartworm disease. I actually saw a heartworm-positive chihuahua last week, a chihuahua that never touches the floor, let alone spends significant periods of time outside. Why did that chihuahua get heartworm disease? Got heartworm disease because he was not on heartworm preventive, and he got bit by an infected mosquito. All it takes is the bite of a mosquito. So just remember that. A lot of folks don't realize. They think you need an outdoor dog that's going hunting and spends all its time outside and going through swamps and ponds. No. All you need is a dog in an environment where mosquitoes exist. The mosquito bites the dog. The dog gets heartworm. And that's all it takes, an infected mosquito. And I don't care how indoor a dog is. They go outside to poop and pee. They're going to be exposed to mosquitoes here in Florida. At this time of the evening, 9 p.m., I go outside. If I stand out there for, you know, more than a minute, I'm swatting mosquitoes away from me. Um, now, let's face it, not every cl- not every climate is like Florida, but, you know, back in New Jersey where I grew up, which is a fairly temperate climate, and the summers aren't terribly hot and balmy, with a few exceptions, uh, still a lot of mosquitoes out there. I mean, I remember, I've dealt with mosquitoes all my life, more so here in Florida, but it's Anywhere where there's mosquitoes, remember that. Anywhere where there's mosquitoes, your dog could get heartworm disease. Just uh, They don't need to be an outdoor dog to get it. Number five, this is a good one. Garlic and brewer's yeast are effective flea preventives. <laughs> Let me say this unequivocally. No, they are not. <laughs> they are downright useless. Don't waste your time stinking up your dog with the garlic. Don't waste your time feeding him the brewer's yeast. It is not going to prevent fleas. If fleas are around, they are going to re- reproduce and colonize your dog just as well with if he's loaded up with garlic and brewer's yeast as if he wasn't. So um, that stuff doesn't do anything, ladies and gentlemen, no matter what anybody on the Internet wants to tell you. Number four, it does not matter where I get my pet's shots. I mean, it's just shots, right? Uh, this is a, this is a big one these days because you know with the economy the way it is, uh, people are just looking anywhere to save, and you know what? That's their right to do so. And certainly, if something looks like a bargain, we want to investigate that. We're all raising families, and we want to get through this economic misery uh, as as unscathed as we possibly can. So I can respect people looking for a bargain, ladies and gentlemen. This isn't the place to do it. Not all vaccines are created equal. Not all veterinarians are created equal. Uh, When you go to a so-called discount clinic, these types of places, or this is one of the newer phenomenons we're seeing pop up these days, somebody pulls up in a van uh, to a a local pharmacy, you know, name your your pharmacy, you know, they have a, a sign that says, we do rabies shots, we do these shots, and some guy or woman on a van pulls up and examines your pet and and does these discount vaccines. Well, keep in mind the bread and butter of these veterinarians, uh, I say quote-unquote veterinarians, <laughs> their bread and butter is vaccines. They're not treating any kind of disease. They're not really focusing on medicine. They're, they're, they're capitalizing on the fact that people want to get shots and they want them cheap and want to pay minimally for them. So they're going to come along with their van and have minimal overhead and 
and say, uh, okay, well, I will give you bargain basement priced shots. Well, here's the deal. Because it's their bread and butter, are they going to carry the best vaccines? No, they're going to carry the cheapest vaccines. They're going to carry the stuff that they can maximize their profit out of because that's all they're doing. They're not doing general medicine. They're not treating disease. They're not really doing much in the way of surgery. So they are going to generally carry very poor vaccines. And when I mean poor vaccines, what I'm talking about is the ones that are out there that are going to be more prone to reactivity. So they are not well processed. They are not they are not well evaluated. They are not well manufactured. And a lot of due diligence has not gone into the processing of or production of these vaccines. And so what we see with a lot of the cheap vaccines is a higher potential to have adverse reaction. That's number one. Number two, the effectiveness may not be as as uh, consistent and reliable. So effectiveness and potential for reactivity, those are the two factors we're looking for. And you know what? A lot of the vaccines out there don't fit that bill very well. So what what, what do I carry in my clinic? I'm going to carry the stuff that's going to give me the, the, the best statistical safety and efficacy for my patients. Whereas the dude pulling up with with the van at the local pharmacy, he's going to look for the most cost-effective stuff out there that's going to maximize his profit. Um, so just remember that. Not all shots are created equal. And likewise, number three, it doesn't matter where I get my pet spayed or neutered. I mean, it's just spays and neuters, right? No big deal. Well, that couldn't be further from the truth. I actually have an inside, an insider's perspective on this. First off, let's talk about the neuter and the spay in terms of what they are. Well, the neuter is a castration. That is what's known as an orchidectomy. And essentially what we're doing is we are ligating, tying off the testicular artery, vein, and nerve, and then leaving those ligatures in place, excising the other side of that. And if there's a major bleed from you know, any of those ligatures, you can end up with actually bleeding out those uh, arteries and veins come right or the arteries come right off of the abdominal aorta so you know it's 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 a fairly routine surgery it's not that big of a deal fairly small incision but still you know uh, it is a surgery and one that a patient could die from all right we have to understand that it's nothing to necessarily take that lightly the spay on the female side is actually a major abdominal surgery if if you really just you know hear the 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 actual scientific name for a spay an ovarohysterectomy, you know that that puts a little more gravity to it. You are performing an ovarohysterectomy. You're removing the ovaries as well as the uterus from a female dog, and it's no less in gravity than a person going through an ovarohysterectomy. And certainly we don't take those lightly. So let's think of it in the context of okay surgery. Let's let let's let's not you know look at that in in such a such an easy light and say oh well you know let's go for the discount stuff. Trust me, you get what you pay for. Um, again, back to my insider's perspective, I have the unique opportunity to have recently hired a, uh, a part-time technician who used to work in one of the local quote-unquote discount spay and neuter places. And um not going to mention them by name. I don't need a lawsuit on my hands. They probably have deeper pockets than I do. But let, let's just be clear about one thing. When she first, you know, witnessed me doing my procedures, uh, 
what threw her for a loop is that for every spay and for every neuter, I am scrubbing my hands, I am gouting up, I have a cap and mask on, and I am completely sterile, and I'm treating that surgery no differently than surgery should be treated. Sterily, hand scrubbed, sterile gloves, sterile gown, cap and mask. Anybody in the OR has a cap and mask on, and each patient gets a fresh surgical pack. Every patient has an IV catheter, every patient gets IV fluids during the procedure, and every patient is hooked up to an $8,000 surgical monitor that monitors EKG, pulse oximetry, which is the oxygen saturation of the blood, and blood pressure. That way we can step in if there's any anesthetic events that may occur that compromise the stability of the patient. Well, she was just astonished, first of all, that I scrubbed my hands, and I was like, wait a second. You think it's unusual that I'm scrubbing my hands? Well, yeah. The doctor I worked for in this discount place would just change his gloves. <clears throat> so he didn't even he didn't even scrub his hands. He just put sterile gloves on. There was no gown. There was no cap or mask. Nobody in the OR was required to wear a cap and mask. And surgical packs were used on multiple patients. When I say surgical pack, what I'm talking about is the instrument. So, you know... You know, if it comes down to it, and that's the only means by which you can get a spay or neuter, okay. But if you if you can't afford a spay and neuter in a proper general practice, that's the better way to go, folks. Because you know, when it comes to saving money, um, I don't think surgery is the best place to do it. Number two, spay should be delayed until the pet has one or two heats so that she can experience the hormones to develop properly, mentally, and physically. Oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. This one gets on my nerves, too, because often it comes from breeders, breeders that are, you know, just putting nonsense out there. Um, This is completely hogwash. Um, One of the reasons we like to spay dogs, of course, the pregnancy prevention is great. Prevention of other diseases is great, but here's a big reason I'm spaying dogs, is I want to prevent mammary cancer down the road. Um... And here's the statistic. If we spay a dog before its first heat cycle, before it has its first heat cycle, of course, we don't want to spay them too young. But if we wait till six months of age, we're usually going to you know, catch that female before she has her first heat. Um, by six months of age, she's had plenty of hormone that she needs to continue to fully develop. And we're not concerned about that. But if we catch that spay before she has her first heat cycle, we reduce the incidence of mammary cancer by 80%. 80%. That's a very common cancer in females. Mammary cancer is equivalent to breast cancer in human females. Only the the canine female has 10 breasts, and uh, you know the human female only has two. So it's a much bigger deal for dogs if they get mammary tumors. Um, we reduce that potential by 80% when we spay them before the first heat. If we let them have that first heat, the preventative aspect of the spay drops to 50%. And if we have, let them have a second heat, the preventive aspect of the spay drops to 25%. And then thereafter, you know, whether you spay them after the sixth heat, seventh heat, or any time thereafter, it remains about 25% preventive to spay the dog. Um, so basically by telling people this and by this misinformation going out there that, oh, they need to have a heat or two, well, you're reducing the effectiveness of the spay to prevent a major cancer. Um, and that, to me, just doesn't make any sense. So please, folks, anybody you talk to, please plead with them. Don't let your dog have its first heat. Get her spayed before that first heat, and you can virtually guarantee 
that that dog will not have mammary cancer later in life. And number one, this is a real interesting one because I believe this one also applies to people, this, this myth, but cancerous tumors in dogs and cats spread faster once they are exposed to air. Not true. Absolutely, emphatically, unequivocally, untrue. And uh, I don't know how this piece of information got out there, but, um, you know, realistically, if we have a cancerous tumor, malignant tumor, um, what happens is it creates its own blood supply. It makes new blood vessels where there were no vessels, and lots of times they're sharing blood supply with major organs. Um, and, and so you'll see major vessels going to these tumors. And what is that blood bringing to those tumors? It's bringing oxygenated blood and other nutrients that feed the tumor. So whether you open the patient up or not, these tumors are exposed to oxygen, folks. They're getting it from the bloodstream. Every time we inhale, we take a big big breath, we inhale, um, we're oxygenating a certain amount of blood, and that blood then goes back to the heart, and it gets pumped out to the rest of the body to provide oxygen and other nutrients to the organs. Well, if there's a malignant tumor, guess what? That blood's also bringing that tumor oxygen. So when we open it up, we do not expose it to oxygen, which suddenly says, ooh, oxygen, I can spread now because I'm going to... I'm going to thrive now that i got all this oxygen. No, no, hogwash. It already had plenty of oxygen. Um, you know, Again, we don't know exactly where this myth originated, but I, I think it comes from this fact that patient comes in not doing right, <clears throat> feeling poorly, and uh, we ascertain that there's a mass in the abdomen. Okay, So a mass in the abdomen is one example of a potential place for a malignant tumor. Veterinarian opens up and finds that uh, there's a malignant mass and, you know, it looks inoperable. It's sharing too much blood supply with uh, a vital organ or sharing or too close to the abdominal aorta or sharing um, blood supply with the, the portal vein in the liver or what have you. Is, it makes it a very bad idea to try to take this tumor. Let's just close up your dog and let her live out her life. Well, then a month later, the dog dies, Okay. People take that as, well, my dog wasn't doing that bad until the vet opened up my dog, closed her up, exposed that tumor to oxygen, and a month later she died. Well, no, that's not really what happened. What happened was your dog was sick enough and not doing right enough that you, you know you brought her in to see me. Um, we found the mass. Obviously, you were in the office for a reason. The dog wasn't doing great to begin with. I opened up, did an exploratory, determined that it was not in the dog's best interest to resect that mass. mass. Uh, however, you know, let's keep her comfortable as much as we can and uh, let her live out the rest of her life, which, you know, could be another month or two or three or whatever, you know, depending on the type of tumor we're dealing with. So we close up the dog and, you know, a month or two later, the dog is either coming back uh, to be put to sleep for quality of life reasons or she dies at home. Well, the owner, for some reason, sometimes will determine that <laughs> opening up the dog accelerated its demise, when realistically, no, that was already set to happen. Um, it's just that things were too far gone by the time you know we were able to get our hands on the patient. So um, that's not true, folks. Don't be concerned about that. Don't worry about that. Um, oxygen exposure to the tumor happens the minute it picks up blood supply, which every tumor needs blood supply to survive and it's no different from malignant tumors. And that oxygen is going to come right from the patient's lungs. It doesn't need to be opened up to get oxygen. All right, so there is my top 10 pet medical myths. 
I'll be interested to see some of the comments on these because I'm sure at least a few of you were believing some of these. Some of you may still outright disagree with me. So please let the comments come in and uh, speak your mind because I do enjoy uh, all manner of comments even if you don't, those that don't agree with me. So have a great evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, as always, for joining me. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to care what I have to say. Have a great evening. Taking charge of your future starts with taking the first steps. And saving up to $30 a month on Cox Internet with the Affordable Connectivity Program makes those steps easy to take. Whether they bring you to click upload on your first short film or join now for an online book club. Applying is easy. See if you qualify at cox.com slash ACP. Non-transferable one per household application and eligibility decisions are made by the FCC. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.